0: I want to invite you now, we want to be in Mark chapter 6, and this is something we do together as a corporate practice, so we want to put the Bible into your hands so that it's not just me spouting off about it. So if you don't have a Bible, would you do me a favor and just raise your hand and hold it there? And we would love to put a Bible into your hands. Uh, We want to make the Bible, this this thing that we call God's Word, the center of our focus. Not such that you just sit and listen to me pontificate on it, uh, but instead that we as a corporation, or like a corporate practice, open it up and let it open us. And so I want to invite you, if you would, to join me in Mark chapter 6. That's the sixth chapter in the book of Mark. And as you're making your way to the sixth chapter of Mark, or Googling it, or opening some app uh, to get access to it, I want to... Give us a moment, hopefully, to center what it is that we want to accomplish today and maybe drive our thoughts as we read the entirety of this chapter, 60 plus verses together. One of the most astounding things that I encounter on a regular basis are people who, having heard this good news that Jesus has done something for us, that has reconciled us to God. One of the most confounding and amazing things that I continue to hear over and over and over again are people that have been born and raised within uh, the influence or under the leadership of the church, the group of people that call themselves believers and followers of Jesus, people that have even been raised by people who would call themselves believers and followers of Jesus, Come to this good news of Jesus, this gospel, and say this astounding statement. I've never heard this before. Even some of you in this room that I've, I've heard you say this, as, as you've, been, you've been raised in the church, you've spent more time in the church than, than some people. Some of you were like, like born in between church services, and for the rest of you who, who don't have any baggage from the church, you're man, lucky you, you're in an awesome place, be, be blessed this morning, but, but you'll hopefully see something maybe that I've begun to notice. Sometimes the people who have spent the most time in the church or within the influence of the church or under the teachings of the church are the people who are the most astounded when they hear that God has done something and accomplished something despite anything that they've ever done and they hear that as good news. And they go, I didn't know this. I've never heard this. And I think I can share with you, even in my own experience, how this is borne out to be true. See, I was born under the influence of the church, right? I'm a preacher's, a pastor's kid, right? So all, all the baggage that you hear about preachers' kids, this guy right here, all right, all of it, good, good or bad, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. And that that's my upbringing, and and it wasn't that I hadn't heard the gospel. It, it was just simply that when it was told to me, they weren't really sure, and they didn't spend a lot of energy telling me that this is the story. And so I heard the gospel. I heard that God would forgive me in Jesus Christ. There's this story, the story of all of existence in which God has saved me and he sent his son to die for me. He's made a way for me. And I simply heard that as like a prequel story to my own story. Because the way they presented it was God loves you and forgives you and has sent his son to die for you. Now, all you have to do is this. Heard this? And they're basically saying that this story of Jesus is so important that it's actually kind of a prequel to the real story, which is you. Because you're a snowflake. Or a princess. Whatever, whatever language was used for you. I, I know for me, what they essentially were, not intentionally, but, but inadvertently communicating, was that the story of Jesus was a story that was meant to prop up the story, which is the story of me and how exceptional and great I am. Or that story is simply a prequel to what I'm supposed to do. Jesus has died for you. Now all you need to do is pray this prayer. Read this Bible. Take these steps. Do these things. And shame on you if you don't. Almost to the extent that you would wonder if Jesus really had done those things if you broke these. And I want to encourage you that For those of you who maybe have a deeper influence in the church that runs through your own life, I want to warn you and encourage you with this good news. This story of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ is the story. It's the story. It's the only story. It's the story that we find out later in the New Testament. It's the story that's been told since before the foundations of all that exists have been laid. And it's the story by which your meaningful, but somehow also infinitesimal and exponentially more insignificant than Jesus' story, actually comes to have shape. It's only by this story of what God has done for us that your story and mine even make sense. So I, want to, so I want to warn you to open up the Bible, and some of you are even tempted now to, to take my words, as I'm about to tell you explicitly about what Jesus did and what he has accomplished. And even then, some of you are now preparing to go, okay, well, this is, here's what I need to do. All right, this is what I need to do. I'm going to take notes. Do this better this week. Stop being so bad at this this week. And what you have done inadvertently and maybe unintentionally is you've taken the greatest story ever told about a loving and merciful and just and forgiving God, and you've made it to where it's a story about you. And I don't want that to happen to you. I don't want to simply tell you about Jesus to just reinforce that you're the center of the universe. I want to tell you about Jesus so that you'll understand how your story even makes sense. It really is, according to Francis Crosby, the sweetest that ever was heard. And this story of Jesus begins to give us meaning. So lean in and listen as the story is told of who Jesus is. Because I can tell you from firsthand experience all the frustration that comes when you try to make everything about you. It's such an angering, oh man, it's such a, such a disappointing existence. And I, I, I spent years of my life trying to figure out why everything didn't revolve around me. And it's such an empty existence when you assume that everything revolves around you. So I want to tell you this story and I want to warn you because sometimes the people as we see here that think they understand the story the most end up being in a disadvantage for hearing it and receiving it in faith. So I'm going to read this entire chapter again. I'll give you freedom. If you, if you like kind of space out in the middle of this reading, it's a, it's a big chunk of text. I intentionally want to expand and stretch your attention span for the Bible. So I'm going to read a big chunk of text, and if you find yourself spacing out, that's okay. Not many people can take this much in, but I want you to pay close attention to the thing that draws your attention back to the text. So if you space out, good. Think about what you're going to eat. But then pay close attention to the words that I read that actually bring your focus back to them. So beginning in verse 1 of Mark chapter 6, one little chapter of this amazing story of who God is for us in Jesus. He, that is Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out excuse me, went about among the villages teaching, verse 7, and he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him, that is Jesus. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him, that is, John, safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to even half of my kingdom. And she went out and she said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head And brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and then laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people and he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mound to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got off of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever He came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored Him that they might touch even the fringe of His garment. And as many as touched it were made well. I want you to see here that the divine authority of Jesus Christ can be seen in His divine wisdom and His divine power. And this is, as I think we might find, imparted to those whom He has sent out. And this will allow them to see not only His presence, but experience His providence and even His power. I think we'll see here in this chapter that the people who get a glimpse of His divine wisdom and His divine power, see His divine authority, and it's especially those who are sent out, even sometimes against the odds and into difficult circumstances, places that might even reject them and reject their message. But as a result, what happens is they are not the ones who miss out on His power, on His presence, and His providence, His ability to heal, His ability to provide, and His ability to bring peace where He is. And all of these things that are demonstrated for us throughout this chapter kind of serve as an explanation for the first few verses that we see in chapter 6. You see, chapter 5 left us wondering. For remember, some amazing miracles took place. And they happened back to back to back. There was a man who had a legion of demons that controlled him, so much that he was unclean and cast out of his people. And Jesus comes and the demons recognize his lordship. He commands them to leave. The demons desire... In, Instead of being cast out, they want to go to some pigs, they run into some pigs, and a whole herd of pigs run into the ocean and die. Immediately following that, using words of Mark very carefully, immediately following that, a woman runs through the crowd, touches the hem of Jesus' garment, and and instead of keeping a secret what she wanted to keep a secret, Jesus draws attention to a, a bleeding that she'd had for 12 years giving her grace in a place where she used to keep a secret. And then, immediately following that, he goes and he heals a dead girl, the the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus. And you're left wondering, after these three miraculous events, who on earth would reject Jesus? And Mark kind of leaves you at the end of chapter 5, like, who wouldn't follow Jesus? Who wouldn't see Jesus in all His authority, and all His wisdom, and all His power, and submit their life to Him? Who wouldn't? Recognize Jesus for who He is? And the answer Mark gives us is chapter 6. The people that reject Him, that recognize His wisdom and are astonished by His power, end up having no faith or reliance upon Him. He even coins a phrase here that we don't really see anywhere else. Jesus says, look, it's only in his hometown that a prophet is without honor. I wouldn't normally recommend this, but like some really good hillbilly country uh, really resonated with me. It's a, a band called Cross Canadian Ragweed. I know it's as bad as it sounds. And they wrote a song and it's called, You're, only Se- You're Always 17 in Your Hometown. I love it. it's, it's mean, that's the truth. I can walk back into the place where I was 17 and they will look at me. It doesn't matter how well dressed I am or how educated I might sound. They will picture that punk 17 year old. That's what they see. And Jesus coins a phrase here that's even true of the tradition of the prophets. He doesn't quote scripture here, but instead he summarizes scripture, almost the entirety of the Old Testament, saying that sometimes God sends messengers, namely prophets, to tell a word to his people and the place where they're most likely to be rejected or the place where people know them the most familiarly. I saw this, uh, some statistics that were put out by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, the branch of the United States Department of Transportation, and they said this four years ago three out of four crashes that take place at a railroad crossing. Three out of four, that's more than 75% here, we find out, more than three out of four crashes between a train and a car at a railroad crossing take place within 25 miles of the motorist's home. Three out of four. Over 50% of all crashes that take place between a car and a train at a railroad crossing take place inside five miles of the person, the motorist's home. So get this. What they found statistically is that the majority of the people More than three out of four people who who are hit by a train in their car do so very close to their home. More than half even within five miles of their home. This is particularly important for us. Just a little bit of good advice to throw out there. We kind of live, if you live in Sioux Falls or even close to Sioux Falls, you are 25 miles from a railroad crossing. And what it showed, the statistics showed, it wasn't people who were driving in areas that they were unfamiliar with that were the most dangerous to them. It was the people that were so familiar with the sound of the train whistle and the regiment of crossing over a railroad track that were the most likely to be injured or even killed by an oncoming train. Publius, in the second century, said this. He said, familiarity breeds contempt. And for the Department of Transportation, it means... That the people who are most in danger of being hit by a train while they're in the car are the people that have seen that train and that train tracks the most. And they're not hit because they're unfamiliar with the surroundings. They're not unfamiliar with where they are. It's that they're so familiar with the the oncoming or or the lack of oncoming trains that they assume that there won't be one and those are the people that are harmed. It's the people who know the trains the most that are hypnotized by the train whistle. I mean, just think about it. If you live in Sioux Falls, when's the last time you heard a train whistle and actually thought something was up? You hear it and you go, oh, that's a train. That doesn't affect me. How many times have you crossed over a train track? Some of you even this morning on the way here and, and thought, nah, there's never a train here. Why should I slow down? Why should I pay any real, any real attention? I'll just assume the lights work. And I'll assume there's no train coming. And that's when these people are at most risk. And the answer to Mark's question that he poses from chapter 5, who on earth would not believe in Jesus? Who would resist his teaching? Who wouldn't see him for who he is? The answer are the people that are the most familiar with him. The people who think they know him. The people who think they understand all they need to understand about Jesus they're the ones who are at risk of missing out on who Jesus really is. I want to pose to you a mystery. For those of you who have preconceived notions about who Jesus is, I want to warn you, we cannot come to Jesus on our own terms. We must see Him for who He truly is. Now for those of you who have not been raised in the influence of the church, Right, this sounds ridiculous. And for you, this, this, this God bless you, you don't have any of the baggage that comes with this. But, but we live in America. In which case, the majority of people have at least heard something about Jesus. They've at least heard something about what He's done or who it is that Christians believe that Jesus is. And I want to warn you, because it may be that our culture has instead of teaching us about the true identity of Jesus, the culture may have given us an inoculation, a vaccine that in fact makes us immune to Jesus' true nature. Because we can't come to him on our own terms. We'll miss out on him completely. We must see him for who he truly is. You see, these people who he saw in his hometown knew who he was. In fact, knew who he was better than any of us. In fact, the first eight chapters of the book of Mark, Jesus, or excuse me, Mark paints this picture of the followers of Jesus, namely the apostles, being the ones who are the most thick-headed for following and understanding his teaching. Right? For the first eight chapters, you're, you're meant to be astounded by how little the apostles really understand about who Jesus is. The people with the most important questions, the people that should get it, are the apostles, the people who spend the most time with Jesus. Now this is important because Mark was likely speaking to his church full of full of Greeks and full of Romans, maybe. And and he was speaking to these people who at that time were thinking, Mark, we just don't get it. We hear you talking about Jesus, but we don't really understand who he is. And Mark wrote his gospel, specifically the first eight chapters, so that you and I, who might have questions and doubts about Jesus, would sympathize with even those who were closest to Jesus. Because you know who had the most doubts about Jesus? You know the most questions? And in this case, you know who saw Jesus the most dimly? The people who were right with him the people who were his closest company, even as we saw chapters before, his own family. And Jesus, a few chapters before, redefines radically, I would, I would argue. He radically redefines our understanding of family. And he says, you want me to talk to my mom and my sisters and my brothers? And he said, you know who my sister and my brother and mom are? It's the people who do the work of God. And in this chapter, he not only radically redefines family, he, re, he radically redefines our definition of home. He radically redefines what we understand to be familiar to us. The thing that we consider to be our home, Jesus begins to turn on its head and give us an alternative. In fact, so much so that he argues here, I would say say that to be at home with Jesus, to be at such a comfort level with the teachings and the understanding of who Jesus is, might actually put you at a disadvantage for believing in Him and relying on Him. What a paradox. Because every single week, we get together, either in homes and gospel community, or together across food, or, or even right now, seeking to know more about Jesus, right? We want to know Him more closely. And what a paradox. And at the same time that we're knowing Him more closely and understanding who He is more deeply and letting that resonate with us, even to our core, might actually, if we're not careful, just put our own idol of, of what we imagine Jesus to do and say on a pedestal thereby undermining and disconnecting us from the real Jesus. And just like these people, the most ominous passage of scripture, it's also in the gospel of Matthew, according to Matthew, the most ominous passage in the entirety of scripture is verse 5, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He could do no mighty work there. You see the picture of faith kind of illustrated for us. We saw in the last few weeks that that faith in Jesus is seeing who he is and relying upon him. We, in a Western mindset, tend to make faith about us and we even make faith about something that we've done. Even though we say we believe in something, we actually are proud of our belief rather than our reliance upon that thing. The illustration I would give you over and over again, you're sitting in a chair and you're sitting there uh, and, and your faith is in that chair. Some of you have more faith in that chair than the rest of you, but nonetheless, both of you are held up. And it's because it's not the quantity or quality of faith in that chair that's holding you up. It's the strength of the chair. It's the object of your faith that's holding you off the ground right now. It's not your faith. If you think your faith can hold you off the ground apart from the chair, try sitting down without the chair and see how close to the ground you get. Right. So it's the object of the faith here. And this is a, this is a picture of biblical faith throughout the entirety of the Scripture in which when we see something, we rely upon it, and that's the picture of faith. Even though we tend to undermine it and make it kind of a self-serving thing, Ephesians 2 comes along and says that it's only by God's grace, through faith, that you're saved. And this is not anything you could boast of. And you would like to think maybe that means that our faith is kind of secondary, that our faith really isn't necessary. And yet, what do we find here? The most terrifying passage in the and all of Scripture, that Jesus could not do a mighty work there. Now, notice, I would really love it if it just said would. I would love to tell you that in the Greek, it says would. And it said he chose to. It says could. In fact, the same word that we see used, this dunamis, the the word that we get dynamite from, the power or might that the people recognize in the first few verses. Did you see that we we recognize and they're astonished by his mighty works? That same word is used in a different form when it says that Jesus could not do that mighty work. So he performed mighty works, but then it says here in verse 5 that he did not have the might to perform these works. I, I would love to tell you it says would. He could if he wanted to, but it says here an amazing paradox, an amazing mystery, that God in His infinite wisdom, instead of choosing to make people believe, and choosing, instead of choosing to force them like robots to trust and rely upon Him, He has in His infinite knowledge and infinite wisdom poured out Himself and put Himself within the limits of our faith. Philippians 2 says that Jesus, being in the very form of God, emptied himself to be in the form of man And one of the most terrifying passages. I would love to tell you, hey, believe it or not, this is going to happen, but in the end, Jesus is saying, believe, believe, trust me, trust in this thing that I'm doing believe in me. It's not that he wants us to simply be forced into loving or caring for him. It's, it's that Jesus wants very powerfully to save people. And, and it's only by relying on his saving ability that we find the salvation. Maybe the better way to say it, this one of our mentor pastor puts it this way. Jesus' miracles were not simply magic tricks. They weren't simply meant to just impress people because in fact, these people were impressed. It says they were astonished by his might. They weren't magic tricks designed to prove that he could do things. But instead, the Gospels tell us that the miracles that he, is perform, that he performs are signs of his kingdom. They're signs of his lordship. And to demonstrate and to show his redemptive power for all of us. So his miracles aren't just like tricks to make you go, oh, that's cool. I wish I could do that. Because it's, that typically is what we do, right? When we hear a story of a miracle of Jesus, we go, I mean, this is the, one of the first questions. Even of Christians, you go, Why can't I do that? right? As if if the point of the trick was to somehow draw attention to us. And and we see here that, that the miracles of Jesus aren't simply to be tricks performed in a parlor at a cocktail party so that we would be able to do them. They're meant to be signs of his lordship, signs of his kingdom, and a representation of his redemptive power. His miracles always heal and restore people. And they delivered people in ways that revealed how we are to find Him by faith and to have our lives transformed by Him. The miracles that Jesus performs aren't meant to make us worship miracles. Right? Because in that case, we're just worshiping an exalted and and imaginary version of our own self in which we're powerful and can do everything we want. The miracles of Jesus are meant to draw us close to Him and to worship and love Him. And so when it says He could not do these... Very simply, he could not do a deed, perform a miracle that would not ultimately redeem people. If these people weren't going to rely upon this chair, then sitting on it would do nothing. If ultimately they didn't trust the chair enough to sit on it, then the Chair serves no purpose. And for Jesus to demonstrate signs of his redemptive power for people who apparently had no desire to be redeemed or brought right with God would have wasted his energy. And he says, I, I, I can't even begin to grasp this, he could not do a mighty work there. This is the guy who walks into hell, takes with us all of the souls of the damned and people under God's wrath and walks out victoriously on Easter Sunday. And celebrates his victory forever and ever. And it says here he could not. He could not perform miracles there. Oh, he did a few. Verse 6, something happens to Jesus. It says that he marveled because of their unbelief. I confess to you, I don't like this story. I don't like the thought that God can't or cannot do something in Jesus. And I certainly don't like the idea that Jesus is somehow surprised by something. Or one of only two times in which Jesus is surprised by something is found right here in verse 6. He marveled. What did Jesus marvel at? Knowing who he was and knowing who he meant to save and redeem, it says that he marveled at the fact that they didn't believe. They didn't trust in him. You can't come to Jesus on your own terms. And if you try, you'll miss out on who Jesus really is. And this is unpacked for us for the rest of the chapter, is it Not? some of the most marvelous things that Jesus accomplished, feeding thousands of people, healing more people, walking on water, calming the storm when He gets into the boat. And you would think, who would miss out on this? Who would miss out on all these amazing and marvelous uh, mighty deeds and these marvelous works and these signs of His redemptive power? Who would possibly miss out on these miracles of Jesus? The answer? The people who were closest to Him the people who thought they understood who he was. Did you get that? He said, he's the carpenter. We know this guy. We know his family. It's impossible that he could be the Savior of the universe. And it says that they were offended by him. Did you catch that word? It says they were offended by what he was doing. The word there is my. We get the word scandal. They were scandalized by the thought that Jesus could be the Redeemer and Savior and Lord of the universe. People were offended at the thought that Jesus is who He said He was. Can I encourage you? That's not new. People being offended and stumbling over the claims of Jesus is not something new. So take heart, friend. If you find yourself with deep doubts about who Jesus is, if you're in this room and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or you have deep questions that are left unanswered, join the club because even the people who were closest to Jesus did not get it. Be encouraged. The People who were right there with Him were the ones that turned on Him in the end. They were the ones who didn't understand. They were scandalized by who Jesus said that He was. So take heart. You're not the only one. But take heed at the consequence. Take heart in that you are not the only one to see Jesus for who He is and, and have difficulty trusting that He is who He says He is. But take heed in the consequences. This is first meant to encourage you. So if you ever find yourself saying, you know, I can't really follow Jesus because I don't know everything I need to know. This is meant to undermine that claim, is it not? Some of you now, you're like, I'm, I'm, you know, I get it, Jonathan, I get it. I'm supposed to love Jesus, follow Jesus, and tell other people to follow Jesus. Be a disciple, make a disciple. I get it, I get it. But you don't understand, Jonathan, I don't have all the answers to all these questions. Isn't this interesting? It wasn't the knowledge of Jesus and the answer to these questions that bothered these people, it wasn't that they didn't have them. It was that they already had preconceived notions about the answers to them. So take heart. If you find yourself saying, I don't know enough, I don't have all the questions uh, answered about the Bible or who Jesus is, be encouraged because the people who did have the most, an- the most intimate answers about Jesus were the people who rejected Him. Heed the consequence. The second thing you see here is that in the end, that was what limited Jesus' ability to do miraculous things. God in His infinite and omnipotent self has lowered himself to be born of a human and to walk as a human to demonstrate for us the miracle of salvation that the divine will of god could fit in a person the divine work of all eternity could fit into the faith the feeble and wavering faith of his people And when you begin to realize the miracle and and the sacrifice that Jesus demonstrates for us to have abandoned the riches of heaven, the riches of glory, to come and to suffer on a cross, we begin to have our minds opened to the miracle of salvation. To call yourself a follower of Jesus is nothing short of saying that the ocean can fit in a bottle of water. It's a miracle, it confounds the imagination, it's a paradox. And it is a blessing that's poured out on us forever and ever. So just briefly look at what happens immediately when when these people reject Jesus. You would think Jesus would call his disciples together and go, Hey guys, they don't really like us. Let's go to plan B. I know know we've been rejected here. We might need to think of a different strategy. And instead of doing that, did you catch what he does immediately in verse 7? right after he was rejected, right after his own people, had to have hurt, right? For his own family to go, we don't believe you, we don't trust you are who you say you are. In fact, earlier in this, this book, we find out they think he's crazy, he's out of his mind. And right after this rejection, he says in verse seven, hey, you guys get together and two by two, go out. Did you catch that? So catch the implications of this. For you to think, yes, I hear you, Jonathan, we're supposed to share this good news. That's a radical and crazy miracle. But you don't understand people might reject you. Mark goes, I know. That's the point. People might behead us. I know that's the point. And instead of kind of skirting the issue in which Jesus might have said, hey, you know, they might reject you. I don't know if you really should do this. Hey, there might be some violent repercussions for this. You know what he does? He still sends them out with his authority. The cool thing for us, I think, is if you notice, he does on-the-job training. You've ever heard me say this about our church. I hope that our church is, is like a teaching hospital right? You've been to a teaching hospital. I know a lot of you work in medicine, but just at one point you weren't good at what you do, right? And at one point when you, you know, you walk in there and they're like, hey, give me a vein. And you're like, it's right there. And they're like, they cover their eyes and they're like, aha, <coughs> pin the tail on your vein. And then you're bleeding all over the place because somebody over here, and the guy, the, 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 the doctor in the room is just smiling like, <laughs> have you been this? Anyone else? This is the picture of discipleship. We know that we don't have all the answers and yet we have been sent boldly anyway. Because it is more amazing to see God do miraculous things who are ill-prepared so that He gets the glory rather than their preparation. In the end, the power that they walked out with wasn't their knowledge or understanding of Jesus, it was the power of God being made manifest in them. This is why we do what we do. You will regularly jump into a gospel community or a Bible study or, or meet other people in this room that are not perfect, and I just want to go ahead and encourage you, when that becomes a reality and you realize the people around you are not perfect, I want to tell you that's the plan. That's exactly what Jesus meant to do. So much so that we would see that even the people who have it nailed down are not immune to rejection and the consequences of faith in Jesus They began to speculate, and it's kind of a sandwich between the works of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and this this strange little piece of text where we hear this gruesome, bloody death of John the Baptist. So they were sent out for on-the-job training, but they were also meant to realize, and we see this, I think, that as they go, they might be rejected. And if they were to wonder, and if you were to wonder what this rejection might mean, could I lose my family? Could I lose my job? Apparently, John the Baptist even lost his head. Count the cost. Count the cost because this is a picture of following Jesus that I want you to understand that the people who were closest to him did not get. Contrast John to Herod. John is like a a hairy, hair-coated, skin-coated prophet, right? Kind of a reject. Herod was like a gorgeously robed ruler. John was simple and, and austere. He was kind of disconnected. Herod was flamboyant. John however, was righteous. He walked according to the Lord's command, and Herod was debaucherous. He threw parties in which he got drunk, and I don't know if you caught the weird Jerry Springer going on there. He started lusting after his own maybe daughter, maybe niece. Somehow he, he took his brother's wife. We don't know what happened to his brother, but then his brother's wife's daughter, which makes him makes uncle, uncle Herod, he becomes so aroused by her that he promises half his kingdom. John is a prophet who has no price. Herod is a man who could be bought. And so therefore John has moral courage to speak what's right into the world, and Herod is a spineless coward who bends the will get this, the bends the will of his nation to the whims of a little girl. Therefore, John has a clear conscience, and Herod, as you see here, has a troubled conscience. He doesn't know what's right. John loses his head, but I think. If I were to read into this text, we find out that Herod loses his soul. This is what Jesus has called us to do, and, and the warning is meant to resonate in us that the people who are closest to Him might miss it. So catch this. Jesus has radically redefined. He radically defines our concept of home. And to miss this, like we see the people who knew Him the most closely, is to miss out on the presence of Jesus, the, the providence, the feeding of 5,000, the sign of his kingdom, and the power of Jesus to walk on water and to heal. These people who were closest to Jesus, who knew him and knew his family, presumably they were the ones who missed out on feeding of 5,000 people, the walking on the water, the healing that followed Jesus everywhere he went. Don't miss this, friend. They had a deep Seated understanding of home and familiarity and that deep-seated definition of home and familiarity was what alienated them from jesus And they're the ones who missed out on the great works of jesus that demonstrated he was present with his people He could provide for his people and he had power over all things I want to end with this maybe picture of the ways in which this I hope begins to undermine our culture's concept of home And I want to maybe pose it as a possible obstacle for hearing and believing and seeing the fruit of the Gospel in your own life. These people knew Jesus intimately, and yet they had an understanding of home that Jesus messed up. And instead of Jesus saying something like, Man, when you go home, that's where you're welcome. Man, when you go home, there's nothing like home cooking. Man, when you go home, there's nothing like the familiarity of people you know. Instead, what does he say? It's only in your hometown. It's only in your hometown that the works of Jesus here are rejected. This is important. A biblical theme that plays itself out on almost every chapter is the reclamation of what we understand to be home. And I want to argue for just a minute here that not only does Jesus redefine our sense of family as the people who genuinely do God's work, but he also redefines our sense of home as not the place where you were born and raised, but home for Jesus is the place where his work and his redemptive power is on display and received. So just for a minute, where's home for you? If I were to ask you, where's home? Where's the picture of home? What's home? If I said go home, what would you think of? I think you might find, and this is what I want to challenge you, is that our culture has burned that into your head. God has radically placed in you a longing for home, a longing to be with Him, a longing to be in His presence, and our culture has latched onto it and sold you a bill of goods because here's what I think you'll find that some of this some of the people in this room can say this with tears in their eyes that when they finally thought about what home was and they went back there they realized that it wasn't anything that it was cracked up to be ever been there you went back to the thing that was supposed to be awesome and it was actually a wreck and it was an illusion and sure, you can try to build a home somewhere else. You can try to make that home, but you'll come to find out the same thing that Jesus demonstrates for us. True home, the home that he means to give for us is found in faith and trust in him, not in where you were born and raised. Quick, quick sidelight here. In, who was born and raised in Sioux Falls? Like the minority of us. Not very many. Because that's our culture, right? Right? Our culture is much more, I mean, we're we're in the age of globalization. We're much more transient, much more mobile. A job could take any one of you anywhere. But here's what would happen. This is what I would challenge you with. Like, when you're faced with that return to home, you'll come to find out how empty it is. And let me illustrate mine for you Martin North Second, okay? Martin Dormitory. McMurray University, Abilene, Texas. I know you're thinking, I've never heard of that. That was the way I was before I went there as well. And I was put in Martin Dormitory. Martin was the athletic dorm, which means it was the old dorm, right? It was terrible. And yet there's this weird Martin North 2nd, room 206, for some reason has like this warm, fuzzy place in my heart. Like completely warm. I mean, I just, one of the main reasons is that I'm 6'3", so I'm just tall enough to not fit in any beds, right? And it was in the athletic dorm, so we all had seven foot twin sides bets so only the tallest of the basketball players in the athletic dorm had their feet hang off the end so i loved it it was great my closest friends some of the guys that like are closer to me than anything else i I met and and lived with in that dorm we ate together spent all this time together and i had this warm fuzzy feeling but friend i want to tell you that's an illusion martin dormitory is a dump it's a dump. We had to sneak. I don't know if I should say this, but maybe the statutory of limi- you know, maybe the statutes of limitations are like they're up, but like a, we had to sneak a microwave and a refrigerator in and, and install them under our bed because we were uh, we were under the impression that if you plugged electrical stuff in, it would burn the building down. It was a dump. It was awful. We had an old couch that had been passed down, <laughs> I don't know how many times. Who knows what stories that couch could tell? Right? It was a dump, it was awful cinder block walls the majority of the time we were there we had box fans installed into the window you know what i'm talking about cuz heating and cooling was non existent smelled terrible it smelled like 40 years of athletic dudes living there like you i mean you you put a couple boys in a room for 30 minutes and you walk away going like what happened what happened in there this is this is out this, this was this dorm it was in the walls friend my feeling of home and comfort there is an illusion Think of all that I would be missing out on in my own life if I thought that was the home I needed to reclaim. Friend, you're seeing this. There's a few, very few of you who were born and raised in this city, and so you're seeing the fruit of this now, aren't you? God's granting by His work and by His will a new home, isn't He? And He's radically redefining your family, isn't He? And He's putting people in your life that you strangely have a greater loyalty to and affinity for than your own family. And He's creating something around us that is the ultimate fulfillment of this longing for home. So friend, if you find yourself homeless, if you find yourself disconnected, run toward Jesus who radically redefines home. Who radically undermines the notion that this world tells us that it's in your hometown that you find joy. No, Jesus says it's in your hometown that the good news is often rejected in our own culture that says that you ought to reclaim home, you ought to spend all your money on your home, you ought to try as hard as you can to, to reclaim the comforts and the creature comforts because it's your castle. I would argue that it's your idol. And in spite of a culture that says that being home and being comfortable with the people you're comfortable with is the most important thing, Jesus says what? No, my blessing, my blessing is in my work. My blessing is being sent out. My blessing is found even in spite of adversity. And the people who missed out on the great and mighty work that he accomplished in the rest of this chapter were the people that had the wrong understanding of Jesus and home. Let's pray. God, we confess to you that we regularly uh, would rather hold on tightly to anything but you. Um, We would rather sell ourselves to the highest bidder. And we regularly find our comfort in anything but you God, I think our bank accounts would reveal uh, that we spend so much time and energy on comfort and, and acceptance and approval that we may have fallen into the trap of these people at Nazareth who, in spite of their comfort, in spite of their familiarity with Jesus, found their very proximity to Jesus to be the reason that they didn't realize and recognize and experience His blessing. So God, we confess to you that we regularly want to fill our lives with things that give us comfort that is passing. We regularly, even now, sometimes right, I mean, right now we're thinking, boy, I wish I could get back to the way it was. Boy, I wish I could get back to that thing I had. I wish I could get back to that college campus. I wish I could get back, get back to that relationship. I wish I could get back to that time. And that, I wish I could get back to that victory and that accomplishment. God, would you in miraculous fashion begin to undermine our loyalty to those things and show us that those are meant to be but an image, a fleeting and cloudy picture of the fulfillment and homecoming that we genuinely receive in you. We confess that we would rather cling tightly to anything but you. Would you begin to undermine that and loosen our grasp on the culture's view of home? Would you begin to give us a radical sense of family and therefore a radical understanding of home such that even now in places that seem foreign to us amidst amidst people that seem like strangers to us, we would be strangely warmed in our hearts by the presence that you give, not to people who know or think they know you and understand all of these things, but to the people who come trusting and hoping in you alone. Jesus, do this for us. By your name, amen. Amen.